On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review some common survey citations, discuss some recent ASC trends, and review proper drug storage. And in our focus segment, we discuss peer review, and we will interview Carol Ann Holtz, the Senior Director of Clinical Operations at Regent Surgical Health. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 178 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for December 31st, 2022, recording from Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory, accreditation, and finance issues. And happy holidays to everybody. This is the last day of 2022. That's right. We're, we're uh, getting everything ready for our uh, <laughs> New Year's Eve celebration here, and we thought we would get this uh, episode recorded before then. Uh, though we do need to point out this is take 17, I think. <laughs> I uh, we are a little out a of little practice. While. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, was, John actually had COVID. It was his first time, uh, yeah. and he ended up really not not terribly sick. I mean, you know, had to rest and everything, and then... Um, my daughter, who is also staying here, ended up with it. I somehow hit out enough and right. separated, and and I didn't get it. But yeah, she would wear a mask all the time and stayed as far away from me in the house as possible. But, yes, yeah. I, I mean, I had felt for a while that I might have had some natural immunity to it, and mm-hmm. perhaps I did to a lot of the other versions mm-hmm. of it. But this one hit me. Uh, but interestingly, Sue, and this is, you know, we've talked with many of our clients about this issue that. Uh, uh, those centers that require a test before you have surgery, mm-hmm. um, that people that have had COVID could test, you know, continue test to positive test for positive for 30 to, I guess, even as much mm-hmm. as 90 days afterwards. And yeah. I am 12, 13 days out I and think. I am totally, I've actually taken two different versions of the test mm-hmm. just to be sure. And I'm totally free of yeah. it now. And I believe Amy is now too. And well, she's going to test later today, but she's feeling a lot better. She's recovered. She's passed her quarantine time. So we're trying to get back into the normal swing of things, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of threw us for a loop. As well as we we're going to talk about it later, but our little Rosie decided to pick this time, the holidays, 
to go back into heat. So yeah. we are. So that was our last. We were, yes. Entire last week is uh, all <laughs> of the things surrounding out. getting yes. her uh, to be with puppy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, so very we're hoping excited. you took lots of good thoughts sent our way. Please, you please do. <laughs> so we'll have a lot of great puppy uh, pictures, of course, right. and and perhaps uh, we'll have some puppies for one of our. Uh, boot camps coming up, so that that's yep. always a, a fun time. <laughs> uh, and then we had a winter storm here in uh, western New York. It oh actually affected Buffalo yeah. much more uh, mm-hmm. than Rochester, but that certainly, of course, we made the national news in yeah. the Buffalo area. That was tragic. It was. That was awful. Absolutely terrible. And it's been an interesting test. We have a lot of surgery centers, amateur healthcare mm-hmm. strategies, has a lot of surgery centers in Buffalo, so they had to activate their emergency plan. Uh, and, uh, you know, not everybody shut down early enough. Actually, the snow, usually yeah. you can prepare for a snowstorm. But in a uh, place like Buffalo, a lot of people say, well, you know, we live with this. I mean, Buffalo yeah. always gets a lot of uh, snow, but this was just so beyond much, what yeah, it was just terrible once. between the the wind, which made, you know, some areas just pile up feet and feet and feet of snow. I mean, there were like eight, ten foot drifts in some areas. Yeah. And then the really bitter cold there, it would just... Every, you know, the perfect storm, basically. And then a lot of uh, power outages also mm-hmm. occurred. Uh, and quite a number, another interesting lesson coming out of it is that um, while their generators were able to kick in, of course, they couldn't do surgery, but their generators were able to kick in. Mm-hmm. A couple of the places, uh, their generators ran out of fuel because uh, the fuel company could not lasting. get there mm-hmm. uh, to refuel the generator. So I, I'm not sure there's much else that you can do about that other than to, you know, to recognize that there might be a situation where you're not going to be able to keep that generator going for mm-hmm. a long period of time. Yeah. We're also getting ready for our upcoming boot camp. The administrator's boot camp is going to be uh, at the end of January here. So if you're interested in joining us, we still have some slots open. Visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. While we're on the subject of uh, the website, our uh, patron program has become quite popular. We mm-hmm. did introduce a, a brand new a website. We'll link it in our show notes here for people to sign up to become a patron member. It is $25 a month and includes a whole series of different types of benefits, including our Saturday drop-in sessions, which we talk about a lot here because we get a lot of great uh, conversations uh, on our Saturday sessions, as well as a lot of good advice for upcoming episodes. And now we're even getting content uh, from some of our uh, our listeners here mm-hmm. who uh, help tell us about stories that we haven't necessarily uh, heard. And we're actually going to have one in, uh, in a few minutes here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, lastly, uh, as we're uh, getting ready to get introduced to the no- news, this is uh, December 31st, 2022, and this is the end of our fifth year, Sue. Mm-hmm. We started January 1st, 2018, so this yeah. is the end of our fifth year of podcasting. Um, 178 episodes, and uh, we're still going strong. So uh, we have a lot of uh, great things coming up for the next year. And, of course, with our patron program and, you know, the boot camps, uh, you know, all of these things are continuing to grow. And who would have thought that even after, you know, we we started getting back together again mm-hmm. in person, that something like this, uh, this boot camp would remain virtual and that people would still mm-hmm. be attending it. So I think, unfortunately, for those of us that like to be getting together in person, uh, you know, this virtual world is the, is the new reality. And it certainly allows a lot more people to participate in these programs, you know, for far less than it would cost to, uh, to actually attend in person. And, and just makes it more doable. A lot of people, even people that try to dedicate that, you know, full week or four days, four days depending yeah. on the, um, 
boot camp, they often get called away if they if they've had to stay in the office to do it. But we record it so they can yeah. watch what they can and be able to ask questions and really participate, but then fill in the parts that they don't see. So um, it, it's a very handy way to do it. And I did want to mention we're hoping to record a podcast from our retreat next week. We've got that coming up with yeah. um uh, the whole crew. We got a couple that are that are. Yep. yep, we've got a couple people that are joining virtually, but most everybody is going to be here, and and we'll see if we can get some interesting information from. Us. Yep, it, it's a great uh, the amateur healthcare strategies and the SC podcast. The the crews for uh, those two organizations get together twice a year. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in twenty twenty. Two, we were only able to get together once a year because of uh, various problems, um, but uh, hoping to get back to our regular schedule. And during these retreats, and uh, we talk about the importance of getting a retreat for any organization, surgery centers for our company, et cetera, gives you an opportunity to kind of sit back and reflect on on your business, your business model. Uh, in our case, we also, that's when we decide upon changes to our quality improvement programs or our governing body minutes or a policy manual uh, or educational programs. And all of those things are items that we'll be talking about in this upcoming uh, mm-hmm. uh, event. So uh, as well as uh, new services that we'll be offering. We have a lot of great uh, new things going on in amateur healthcare strategies, including a new uh, uh, relationship with a, uh, a partner that uh, will help with our electronic or our web presence. So a lot of stuff going on. So keep a very close eye on what's going on with us. So uh, we have not been together for about three weeks, so let's uh, update everybody on the news, Sue. Okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about some recent citations, just to keep everybody aware of what everyone's looking for out there. I saw this part on the Ohio State Association's website. Recently, Kara Newbury, who is the Director of Government Affairs and Regulatory Council for ASCA, reported on the top citations from CMS in 2022. Uh, the highest number, which um, at 11%, was for sanitary environment. This is a lower percentage than in 2021, um, where it was 17%. That's kind of concerning uh, to me. You know, that mm-hmm. sanitary, of course, means the cleanliness of the organization. Yeah. And, you know, Sue, in my uh, recent site visits, I, I guess I have to agree that this is something that I've been seeing recently with surveys that I've been doing and, and mock surveys. And I, I'm not quite sure, you know, I think coming out of COVID, people would be a lot more careful about it, but I, I, I mm-hmm. suspect this has a lot to do with our staffing problems. And you probably know, the other things have kind of taken over yeah, yeah. some of the issues. Um, the second highest was administration of drugs, and that was at 10%. And a new tag this year was Q0246, which is COVID-19 vaccination of facility staff, but that actually only made up 3% of the citations. Meaning that most people are mm-hmm. making sure that their staff has uh, has been fully vaccinated. Yeah. It's interesting, that second highest citation regarding administration of drugs, I wonder, uh, we'd have to delve into that a little mm-hmm. deeper, but I can just speak from my experience with uh, with our own, you know, with my own mock surveys and real mm-hmm. surveys is that that tends to be the labeling of the drugs, using the drugs that have been drawn up, you know, mm-hmm. within an hour, or uh, making sure that multi-dose mm-hmm. vials are drawn up in a non-patient care area. That mm-hmm. in particular has been an area, so... A lot of those things, and you might want to refer back to, if this is new to you, uh, refer back to our episode. I think it was just the last episode on uh, on pharmacy. Yes, and I think we will we should be able to get a lot more information on this as more of it comes out because this right. is just kind of a very brief overview. And one of the survey organizations, ACHC, also sent out some information on their most um, frequent citations. 
and they gave some examples. So 45% of the centers had deficiencies in medical records, and some examples were handwritten documentation was illegible. Imagine that from a doctor. I, I don't. I, I, I can't you know, imagine. And the rule that we have uh, as surveyors is that somebody in your organization has to be able to read it. Mm. And if nobody can read yeah. it, then it's considered illegible. And just the survey that I did most recently, there definitely was a problem with legibility there. And yeah. again, the staff could not even read what the yeah, doctor had that's written. that's a problem. Um, automated timing and computerized system is incorrect. So that's an interesting I one. believe probably, you know, it, it was auto-populated. And yeah, we right. see this as well with you know, orders and things like that. If you have an auto-populated thing, you have to go in and make it um, make it specific to the patient, make sure it's actually accurate. Yeah, and so that, that brings up another point that you uh, reminded me a while ago is that uh, when I think you had listened to a uh, attorney talking about electronic medical records and mm -hmm. that one of the, the mains of his existence was the fact that they, um, that when they were defending uh, surgery centers mm -hmm. that often the auto population would be causing the problems in mm. those electronic medical yeah. records because there would be wrong information or information was clearly wrong, mm -hmm. but because of the auto population, it was automatically there. Yeah. And transfers were missing information such as um, the reason for the transfer, the order for the transfer, and um, the doctor's progress notes. And 29% of the centers were cited for administration regarding personnel records and those included lack of employee files for the per diem staff. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Uh, missing content such as a nursing license or evidence of annual training and orientation, which is not that surprising to me that orientation, people don't always yeah. document that as appropriately and, as they should. And Sue, I've seen uh, recently in some of our site visits mm -hmm. uh, that uh, surgery centers that are using agency staff forget that they have to have an employee file for that individual mm -hmm. also. And orientation. And, um, they, and orientation. they think, well, we don't have time. They only come for a day, but you have to do it. Yeah. And, and think about that again. I think we've talked about it, but mm -hmm. I got to emphasize this is just think about, you know, the danger that you could have if that uh, agency staff person encountered a problem. If they're mm -hmm. a nurse that, that yeah. had an er, uh, emergency, do they know even where the, the, um, the crash card is mm -hmm. or what's in the crash card? And 29% um, was medical staff granting privileges. Files were missing the written letter of appointment, including beginning and end date of appointment. Which I've seen quite a bit, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Governing board minutes have no documentation of the board granting privileges to physicians. So the paperwork's done, but nobody ever, yeah. uh, you know. Which I've seen, again, mm -hmm. just recently during survey and, dur yeah. and during mock surveys. So, yeah, this is very consistent with my own experience. So the next one is 32% uh, medical staff credentialing files. So this is specifically the credentialing files as opposed to the process of granting privileges. Right. Um, no evidence of MPDB queries or dated appointment or reappointment letters with date of expiration for credentials. Um, the files were not consistent with medical staff bylaws and um, no primary source verification for CRNAs. And I know these last two bullets were things that you had wanted to discuss, John. Yeah, I've uh, seen a lot of problems recently with people uh, not uh, having updated medical staff bylaws. And mm -hmm. frequently what happens is the staff hasn't even read the medical staff bylaws. And in some yeah. cases, these bylaws are very, very mm -hmm. old. I had a recent uh, situation uh, during a survey where the uh, medical staff bylaws were from 10 years ago when they started the organization. And it listed uh, a whole series of committees that this organization mm -hmm. was supposed to have. And there was no evidence that these committees ever 
existed. Mm -hmm. And what's even worse is that those committees were assigned responsibilities that were not evident anywhere in the organization. So they, they, you know, had no proof that those functions were being done. Mm -hmm. So read your medical staff bylaws. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happened with that is that the, uh, they were not following the medical staff bylaws with regard to initial appointments, which Mm -hmm. had a different time frame than ongoing appointments. So it was less than the, the two years. Okay. Uh, and every one of their files, there wasn't a single file that was in compliance mm-hmm. uh, with their own medical staff bylaws, which does not look good in a survey because it's yeah. it's 100% failure. Same thing as, as like with the policy manual. You might be doing what, you might look around and, and say, well, this is the correct way to do it, or a lot of centers are doing this this way. But you've essentially made your own regulations when you've done your bylaws. Um, so you have to meet not only the the law and the regulations, but you have to follow your own rules. So if they if you're not, then you have to change them That's or right. change what you're doing. And the primary source verification for CRNAs. We've talked about that a lot. The NBCRNA website uh, does provide primary source verification. And I am curious here, not saying that ACHC doesn't have some mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not know this, but it is confusing. I saw, found some inconsistency with regard to surveyors who are not aware of NBCRNA's mm-hmm. process. So as I've noted before, when you're printing the uh, the verification of the, the uh, CRNA's uh, education and training, uh, print both the actual verification and the page before uh, you you verify them. That uh, says that it is that primary, primary source. source. And again, we don't know if this is it. There are also, I'm sure, are a lot of centers that maybe just aren't aware that they have to get primary source verification yeah. for CRNAs or just haven't done it, but this just kind of triggered that in our minds because we run into that a lot of, a That's lot of right. times. And again, it, I, I sense that this might be more of an issue uh, mm-hmm. with regard to uh, surveyors. And and if your surveyor does say, hey, wait a minute, MBCRNA does not pr- mm-hmm. provide evidence of uh, primary source verification, well, what I would do is I would uh, bring them on, take them online, show the surveyor online how it does indeed mm-hmm. uh, provide primary source verification. But you can avoid that whole situation if you actually print the page from the NBCRNA website that says that they do the primary source yeah. verification of education and training. And then I saw some um, top trends in surgery that as was reported in the December 2022 Outpatient Surgery Magazine. Now, there were a few. I'm it's a good thing to talk about during uh, the last episode of the year as yes. we go into the new year. <laughs> Here's what's been happening. But they had more than what I'm talking about here, and they and they really delved into why it was happening, what you can do to combat it. So it's, it's a really good article, but I'm just going to um, briefly mention it. Um, recruitment and retention issues. So no surprise lot, there at yeah. all. It's, you know, and they did make the point that it's not just nurses, it's techs, it's, you know, just well, even, everybody. Well, even I think upfront staff, administrative mm-hmm. staff mm-hmm. are finding problems with billing and coding and yeah, uh, cleaning staff. It's it's across the board. And an increase in ASC-based cardiology. As those new procedures are being approved for Medicare pay, uh, mm-hmm. patients. At, yeah, and a much lower cost. I think they said it's usually 30 to 40 percent of what a hospital would charge. Yeah. Um, decrease in physician-owned ASCs as more management companies are taking over a higher percentage of ownership. So they, you know, maybe a physician owns 49% and then they own 51%. So that's a big change. Well, in deference to all of our listeners who are Mm -hmm. with management companies, this is kind Mm -hmm. of a sad trend for me. I mean, most of Mm -hmm. our our clients in amateur healthcare strategies, of course, don't have a management company or we work for the management company. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I, I, I like to see those independent centers and I like to see those continuing. So 
It'll be interesting to see what happens here. This is one of those trends that tends to not, uh, I, I mean, I think we've seen this in the past and goes. then it, it mm-hmm. drops off. So we'll, we'll see if this is something that continues. Yeah. And this was interesting. Off-site sterile processing departments um, to save space in the center. So, you know, when, when you're needing to expand and you need another OR, I guess some some sites are doing third-party um, processing, processing or, or doing it, you know, at a remote uh, location. Yeah, and I haven't seen that. I've heard of it, but mm-hmm. uh, we don't have any clients that do that at this point. Yeah. And cybersecurity threats, such as ransomware attacks, of course, are, mm-hmm. are getting... Please, if you haven't listened to our episodes on this or... Uh, or the many webinars that uh, the cybersecurity organizations have done definitely take this seriously because uh, it has uh, it has affected a number of our clients in the past year, and many of them uh, just really have not had the infrastructure in place in order to be able to avoid this type of a situation. Mm-hmm. And interventional radiology, um, sometimes called pinhole surgeries, they are therapeutic procedures that were traditionally open procedures or la- laparoscopic. Um, They're less invasive, less painful, and may only need sedation instead of general anesthesia. Many of these procedures are in that cardiovascular realm, such as breaking up clots, placing stents, or filters. That's interesting. So a lot of interesting trends going on in the industry as we go into 2023. And I think lastly, um, this recently came up in a mock survey for John. There was a center that was storing their controlled substances in a rolling cart. So somebody could just roll it on out the door. <laughs> yeah, I, and you know, I asked you to uh, in a few minutes. You're going to talk about this because I, I, mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't right, and especially since the control. Mm-hmm. So they were they were storing all of their drugs on okay. uh, on these carts. They actually had a couple of them, but one of the carts had installed on it a double lock cabinet mm-hmm. for the controlled substances. And I'm just very uncomfortable with that because just as, as you said, Sue, you could just roll that thing right out the door and mm-hmm. figure know, out a way to get take into your it. Own mm-hmm. sweet time to open up get the, the, uh, the mm-hmm. box. And it definitely did not seem to be right. So uh, you, you found some, uh, some guidelines and general mm-hmm. gu- guidelines though, right? Yep. So the general guidelines are all controlled substances must be stored in a double locked container. If you're using keys, you should store the keys in a separate location from the uh, cabinet. Of course, we, we have seen cases where they're hanging right next <laughs> to it. <laughs> or both sets of keys. There you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Makes it easy, but yeah. we don't want it to be easy. And actually separate from each other, the two keys. Yeah. Um, if you're using combination locks, only share the combination with as few um, individuals, responsible individuals as possible, and change the combination, of course, whenever a staff who had access um, is no longer at the center. And in addition, um, for Schedule 1 and 2 substances, um, they must be kept in a safe or a steel cabinet that is either over 750 pounds, so, you know, difficult to move, or mounted securely to something such as a wall or a floor or embedded in cement. So basically it has to be very difficult to move. Right. Um, Which this rolling cabinet did not, it was clearly not uh, not that heavy. And again, mm-hmm. we're talking about Once you about put wheels on it, with, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. You want it to be very hard to pick up and move or be attached to something very Something immovable, basically. Um, for Schedule 3, 4, and 5 controlled substances, they should be stored using one of the following methods, either a wall-mounted controlled substance lockbox with two doors and two locks, each 
lock having a different key. Uh, locks, lockbox stored, and that's really the most common one. Um, a lockbox stored in a non-public area in a locked room or a secure, substantially built locked drawer. So basically it's um, double locked. Schedule three, four, and five substances can also be score, stored with the schedule one and two substances. And for cold storage for controlled substances, for storage at four degrees Celsius or colder, a single lock box in a refrigerator or freezer that can also be locked is permitted. The room must also be lockable and be locked after hours. And I just want to remind you, these are general guidelines, so please check with your pharmacy consultant if you have specific questions um, and to get more information. And, and so this is all well and good, um, and you've provided great information, but I, I walk into places who have all of these systems, mm -hmm. and then they leave the cabinets unlocked. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the famous mm -hmm. example is anesthesia carts. Great. I mean, they've got all the proper locking mechanisms there. Mm -hmm. They just leave Always them unlocked open. when somebody is not in the room. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so our systems are only as good as the as how, how well you actually uh, follow your policies and, and the requirements there. So mm -hmm. uh, it's good to look at these things. But I think uh, as much as these become yeah. issues, like these rolling carts are an issue, mm -hmm. more frequently we find that they have the proper equipment, mm -hmm. they have the proper setup, and they're just not uh, locking things up afterwards. Yeah. And we have to remind you during this this time is when we're seeing an increase in the amount of mm -hmm. drug diversions uh, that we have to take this seriously. Yeah, and I think also at this time with lower staffing, people sometimes just kind of try to take the easier way out and yeah. they just, you know, they, they don't want to look for the key. They want to have to go get it. They just want to make it convenient, but that's, you can't do that. Well, and we've, we've seen people say, well, I know my staff. I've known mm -hmm. these people for a long time. They wouldn't do that. I'll yeah. tell you, every single one of the diversions that we've seen mm -hmm. recently have been among people that know each other and, um, you know, they're trusted employees. So, yeah, um, you can't, you can't tell an addict just by looking at them right. or somebody that's depressed or, you know, it's, and you want to protect them as well as your center. So, so one of the issues that's been coming up, uh, recently on our, well, on surveys, as well as on our, uh, Saturday drop-in sessions for our patron members is the issue of peer review. And mm -hmm. I, uh, surveyors are getting a lot tougher about peer review. Uh, it is one of those areas that tends to be very difficult uh, to get compliance from the doctors because the doctors, especially if they come to a surgery center, they just really don't want to do anything but do the surgery. And of course, uh, doing peer review uh, takes time away from their, you know, their pain job. But uh, we have to take this seriously, and uh, we thought that we would do a focus segment on it. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about peer review. It's been a long day, and the surveyor has just left, and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all of the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambitory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. 
We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. So let's talk about peer review. So as we always like to do in our focus segment is we want to go right back to the CMS conditions for coverage, the Medicare uh, regulations for ambulatory surgery centers. And the one that is applicable or most applicable for peer review is 416.45B, which is the condition for coverage, the standard for reappraisals. Medical staff privileges must be periodically reappraised by the ambulatory surgery center, and the scope of procedures performed in the ASC must be periodically reviewed and amended as appropriate. So interestingly, the interpretive guidelines don't actually specifically state uh, that peer review has to be done. But as we read through them, you'll mm-hmm. see that there definitely is the implication that you have to do this. Sue, why don't you read the uh, the section from the interpretive guidelines? The ASC's governing body must have a process reappraising the medical staff privileges granted to each to each practitioner. CMS recommends a reappraisal at least every 24 months. The reappraisal must include review of the practitioner's current credentials, and the practitioner's ASC-specific case record, including measures employed in the ASC's quality assurance performance improvement program, such as emergency transfers to hospitals, post-surgical infection rates, and other surgical complications. The ASC's governing body should use a similar process, including the recommendation of qualified medical personnel for the periodic reappraisal as it is used when initially granting privileges. So whereas this doesn't actually state that we're doing peer review, of course, peer review is what is mentioned here is what they're talking about here, the practitioner's ASC-specific case record. And the other thing that I find interesting as I'm reading this again is that does really uh, make it extremely important to understand the interrelationship between the QAPI program and your peer review when mm-hmm. it talks about, you know, the review of the emergency transfers, post-surgical infection rates, et cetera. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, when I did a, a recent survey, the transfers were actually not – there, there was no incident report for them. They had a log of the transfers, but there was no incident report, which made it very difficult to determine that the organization learned anything, you mm-hmm. know, from that at that event. And of course, that's an absolute requirement, especially since those all involve actual an actual adverse event. So mm-hmm. uh, they were in quite a bit of trouble, unfortunately, because of of missing that um, that particular element in their transfers. But what this is indicating in 416.45b is the importance of reviewing all that information, having uh, like physicians, you know, people in the, that are peers to them, uh, looking at each of these complications to, in order to determine uh, if there's anything that has to be looked at further and whether you should be granting privileges to those individuals. And then it does point out, again, the importance of the governing body being involved in this process. And so many times I'll go in and the governing body minutes will have no indication at all that there, uh, that peer review is being done. Mm-hmm. There might be peer review records in the organization, but the governing body has to be reviewing that peer, that peer review. And it somehow has got to be documented in the peer review minutes. 
So the ASC governing body should use a similar process, including the recommendation of qualified medical personnel. Again, implying peer review here for the periodic reappraisal is used when initially granting privileges. So a question that sometimes comes up when uh, people ask me this question, do I need to have peer references if I'm doing peer review? Now, that really depends upon your accreditation organization. So be aware of your accreditation requirements. I can tell you, for example, the AAAC does not require you to have peer references on reappraisals, mm-hmm. assuming that you have uh, peer review being done. Mm-hmm. Uh, another question that comes up periodically is, what do I do if that practitioner is up for reappraisal but hasn't done any cases? So that would be a situation where you obviously don't have any peer review, and you'd have to go back out and get peer references. So. Mm-hmm. When upon reappraisal, you're going to have to at least get peer review done or peer references if no peer review could have been done. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, interpretive guidelines goes on to state that the ASC must also reappraise a practitioner at any time the practitioner seeks to perform procedures outside the scope of previously granted procedures, and the ASC should also develop triggers for reappraisal of privileges outside the periodic reappraisal schedule, meaning that anytime they want to get additional uh, privileges, you're going to have to look at their ability to do that and any recent experiences that mm-hmm. you've had with them, uh, as well as, you know, keeping track of of things that have been happening. Have they had an increase in uh, perforations in a GI situation, an increase in the number of unplanned vitrectomies uh, to a, a point that it's above the norm? Uh, all of those things would be triggers Uh, for reappraisal. In other words, doing advanced peer review. And Mm -hmm. it's also important to note that there is a presumption that you're going to be doing peer review on any of those cases that didn't go as they were planned. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I I really want to point out and make it very clear here that peer review is not just random chart audits. So many times people assume that the only thing required for peer review is random chart audits, and that's not the case at all. So peer review includes random chart audits and enough to be significant. Uh, but it also re- includes a review of cases that didn't go as planned, like adverse events, transfers to the hospitals. You're also going to want to be looking at complaints and grievances. You want to look at the tracking and trending of incidents and other activities. Is this infection rate going up? That might you know, require you to do peer review of that doctor's uh, infection practices. And it might also include things like the way the provider interacts with patients and staff and their ability to complete charts on time. Lastly, I do want to point out that we really uh, assess whether healthcare professionals have been involved in the development of the criteria that you're using for peer review. In other words, those uh, chart audits or the the focused audits, uh, those items that they check off, they should be something that the the peers that these these professionals have done. Not something that you uh, you got from uh, consultants like us. So we'll mm-hmm. give you some recommendations, mm-hmm. and, a, and perhaps a list of different things that need to be looked at or should be looked at. But it really, the peers have to be looking at that list and, and checking which ones are applicable in their circumstances. Now, during the Massachusetts State Association meeting a couple months ago, I had an opportunity to interview Carol Ann Holtz, the Senior Director of Clinical Operations at Regent Surgical Health. Now, I was I had an opportunity to actually listen to her speech, mm-hmm. and she was incredible. She did a great job, um, and uh, it's one of those topics that you don't really see uh, included in a lot of conferences. Mm-hmm. So I had an opportunity to interview her, and let's Mm -hmm. listen to that interview now from the Massachusetts State Association meeting a couple months ago. 
So this is John Gale. I'm here at the Massachusetts State Association meeting in, what is it, October of uh, 2022? Still October, yes. It is still October in, in Waltham, and this is a great conference, and this is the first time the Massachusetts Association got back together uh, after the pandemic. And I'm here with Carol Ann Holtz now. I had to get that last name down. And <laughs> Carol Ann, you just did a fantastic presentation on credentialing and peer review. Uh, one of my favorite topics, one of those areas that we talk about a lot on the, uh, the podcast. Mine too. But one thing we don't talk about a lot is peer review. So let's kind of focus on that in our, mm -hmm. our discussion today because sure. it is certainly one of, you're a surveyor also. Yes. Uh, with Triple H C too, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So we both know that this is an area that's becoming much more of a focus now, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the last, I'd say probably three to four years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but it's one area that I find when I'm doing surveys is almost always, almost always either deficient yes. or not quite where we all want to be so yeah it's not robust usually it's yeah. not comprehensive it's usually just like a chore to get through yeah you know did we get the numbers right did we get the amount that we need to do but there's right. very little attention paid to um the quality of what's being reviewed and also the um i would say just the consideration like for the benchmarking or you know mm -hmm. how do you apply this data other than reappointing providers because it provides so much more value than just that well, and I think there's a perception that peer review is simply chart audits. Mm -hmm. And you made it very clear that there's so much more to mm -hmm. it. And as I'm listening to you, I'm also thinking, you know, we really need to spend a little bit more time talking about even, there were a couple questions from the audience about what's reportable and MPDB. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a lot to chew off and yeah. you, you got to catch a plane. Yeah. Uh, we could be That's probably right. talking for hours. That's okay. But let's just focus on, first of all, just let's speak for a minute about mm -hmm. what what is the biggest efficiencies we find in peer review programs and what can our centers do to enhance that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, the biggest ones that come to mind is maybe that they, they don't incorporate any documentation to support uh, the use of the peer review um, to support their reappointment periods, mm -hmm. reappraisals for providers. Um, so that's a big deficiency I often see. In other see. words, actually getting that documentation to help support right. the re-credentialing at the board level. Right, yeah. actually aggregating the information yeah. and analyzing and it and, and doing something with it to say, okay, yes, we, we have looked at everything and we are putting this person forth for reappointment. I think that's a huge issue and I think from an accreditation standpoint, that's huge. Um, I think sometimes the part about the adequate, um, you know, providers who are doing the actual peer review or that they actually have, you know, special criteria that they've mm -hmm. been a part of creating, that's also a big thing. I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding about what's required. So, for example, you don't want to, did, did, the, did the surgeon sign off on the uh, operative, uh, you know, notes or, or the, the orders? That that's something a nurse can do. Why waste the doctor's right. time for doing the it? The nurses what is can the do content? a content review, right. but we need to have the providers really doing the appropriateness of yeah, care, yeah. patient selection, et cetera, all of those areas that they should have expertise on, right. which is why it's important. You know, ideally, you want to have those appropriate specialties reviewing one another mm -hmm. um, when you can. I think it, it's it's an important part to examine at your center is, do we have the right people yeah. reviewing these cases? Um, and I have centers I've seen where they have an anesthesiologist who reviews all of the medical, you know, charts. Right. I don't know if that's that's really appropriate, and I yeah. think they need to be looking at that. And so, looking at the appropriateness of the review process, who's doing it, what they're looking at, and the criteria, and how robust it is, and how robust it is. Yeah. I mean, if you have all of this data and you are not 
using it for the value that it provides, you're missing out on a great opportunity for a quality improvement. Yeah. I think you have to, that's, that's part of your tying it into your quality improvement program. That's what you need to be doing. And it's only by using those, you know, performance criteria that you are, you are looking at, you've established here are our criteria, here are our thresholds. Now we're going to look at each provider and where they fall into those categories. And you, like you showed you in this slide, you know, sort of who falls out, who are the outliers yeah. and, is it a provider problem or is it systemic? I mean, mm -hmm. I think if you don't really look at those very closely, you're missing out on a huge opportunity. And also for the point of talking about, you know, they want to suspend providers or terminate providers. Yeah. If you're not giving them the opportunity to improve, you are not doing due diligence. You're not really making the effort that you should be making for these providers because they also have rights. They also yeah. have rights to, to fair processes, you know, just because you see that they're not maybe they're subpar in some areas, you have to address it early as early as you can and give them the opportunity to improve and, and work with the um, medical director, work with their peers. Mm -hmm. It's really important. You know, there's a great question from the audience mm -hmm. about newer providers, in mm -hmm. other words, younger people, because we're starting to see that. Yes. It used to be that the only people who come for a surgery center is somebody that's already done a thousand of these procedures. Yes. But we know now that, uh, that those opportunities, uh, those doctors are few and far between. That now we're going to most likely see as, as people are retiring, younger people coming up through yeah. the ranks. Mm -hmm. And to your point, that's exactly it: is that you don't want to discourage, you don't want to just like brush somebody off who, right. who could probably learn from an event that occurred or for something that was not done, rather than just getting rid of them. Right. Um, and and it, what an opportunity for these young guys, because or these young providers, I should say, uh, because we need to start looking at the future of ASCs. We need to start looking at these young right. providers and giving them a place to do their cases. Yeah. And part of that is going to be, how do we incorporate this into what our current, mm -hmm. you know, processes look like and our, our current policies. If we don't make accommodation, then ultimately, you know, the center's going to die with, with the physicians yeah, yeah. as they leave. So we have to accommodate that, but we have to see how is that appropriate? How can we fit this in and be somewhat open-minded and transparent with, with your medical staff about this yeah. is what we're looking at. We have to do for growth and we need to pull in these, you know, the people from your like medical exec committee, et cetera, and look at how do we accommodate this? How do we provide the, the right field mm -hmm. to give these, these physicians a chance to spread their wings and to grow within the surgery center? So it's really important to do that. And I think it's also important to, um, aside from the processes that you have to uh, maybe look at within your center, you have to determine what percentage of your providers on your medical staff are going to be new because there's yeah. also going to be that offset of if they're not as efficient. So uh, let me ask you a question, and I'm sure you run into this a lot. We'll mm -hmm. go into a center as a surveyor, mm -hmm. and the peer review is, you know, 150 charts reviewed for the year, 100% compliance. Yeah. What is your immediate thought when you see that? Because <laughs> I, I bet a lot of our listeners are in that boat. Yes. And it's not because, you know, remember, our listeners are the administrators and nurse managers. Yes. You know, for the most part. We have some medical directors. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so we don't have control over what those numbers are. Right. But we've got to kind of tell them that that's probably not acceptable anymore. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, with all due respect to their processes, hey, they might have really good review. Um, if it's 100%, I would say... If that's truly what you're getting back, then maybe go back to the drawing board and look yeah. at the criteria that you're looking at. Lower the bar. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, not, not the, not not lower the the quality, 
uh, but lower the bar so that you're looking at more things that you might not have been looking at before. Well, look at look at the criteria. Look at more more things. Maybe change it up. Maybe mm-hmm. add some things. Like I said, you know, talk to the uh, providers who are performing these procedures and say what criteria can we add that we're not looking at. Um, I think that you're doing yourself an injustice at the surgery center level if you're not doing a good job with the peer review. So anytime you have something that's 100%, you have to look at it from the perspective of, are we digging in enough? Are we yeah, actually, right. is this robust enough for to basically uh, support the quality improvement initiative? Because if right. it's not, then you could have the you know 100% till the cows come home, but then all of a sudden you're surprised by something that happens or there's an issue that comes up and it's completely lost in the noise. I mean, like I said, if you're not including compliance, mm-hmm. if you're not including uh, patient satisfaction, you're not including... In addition to these chart audits. In addition right. yeah, you to all of the chart that. audits, I mean, you have to incorporate these other things. So, you know, are they subpar? Or is yeah. it a clinical observation that supports their competence? Yeah. If those things are not all tied into it, or their behavior, like I said, their conduct, yeah. uh, professional conduct, I mean, we're missing out on some really good stuff here because... Yeah. Part of that is our responsibility to ensure that we're looking at quality improvement possibilities and that we are, um, I think, even just for the sake of holding them accountable as professionals. Because without professional accountability, you know, like I said, like I mentioned earlier in the talk about these bullies and whatever, we let people get away with things for an extended period of time without addressing them. How are we serving our patients that way? How are we serving our staff that way? If I was uh, a nurse still at a surgery center and I had a physician who was a constant threat to me as a bully or whatever, I would probably consider leaving because my work environment stinks. You know, I mean, this is, this is part of what we need to consider. It's part of making the environment, uh, safe culture of reporting and a, you know, feeling good about what we're doing to take care of our patients. And that that really won't happen when you have, you know, somebody who's creating a toxic environment. So staying on the topic of mm-hmm. what other things should we be looking at, it strikes me that some of the initiatives that we worry about operationally as an administrator, director of nursing, like on-time starts, like um, uh, timeouts, mm-hmm. um, like the infection rates, mm-hmm. those are things that we should be including as part of peer review can help us out and are no doubt not going to be 100%. Absolutely. And I so those are things you should be integrating into your peer review program, tracking the statistics there, mm-hmm. sharing them with the board, right. and then letting the medical director, you, you mentioned this too, mm-hmm. that you know it's not our responsibility as DON or, uh, right. or, or uh, administrator, it's really the medical director who has to kind of uh, fall onto this uh, bandwagon or jump onto this bandwagon and start mm-hmm. working on it. So your thoughts, that you had a great slide on that. And just talk a little bit about how you can integrate that into a good, robust peer review program. So John, you're referring to the performance dashboard that we were looking at. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to, um, as we said, you know, aligning your peer review uh, activities with your quality improvement program is you're looking at these performance indicators or yeah. your KPIs, whatever you want to call them, quality measures. You want to be able to line them up and really focus on each provider. What is their, you know, what's their rate on each of those areas? Mm-hmm. You're looking at their surgical site infections. You're looking at maybe their hospital transfers um, and, and other quality measures that you would put in there, burns if they're patients have DVTs, whatever you're putting in there. Mm-hmm. But then you want to also um, incorporate, like I said, patient satisfaction. 
Um, mm -hmm. What are the comments that they're getting from patients from their experience? If you're getting comments about issues with communication, issues with wait times, just general problems around uh, scheduling, communication, et cetera, those should be incorporated in as well because right. it's all about the patient experience. We're doing all of this because we want patients to have a high quality experience, a safe experience. And when we have these outliers, it's our duty to actually, you know, look at what are the thresholds here? If mm -hmm. this person is not meeting the threshold um, as a provider, we need to address it. We need to look at it sooner than later. Yeah, it's important to be able to look at these individual measures and benchmark them against each other. Because right. the other thing is, you know, I mentioned during the talk, you can't you can't go to the your executive committee, your medical director, your governing board, and just say, this provider is not doing a great job. Yeah, you need to yeah. quantify everything. You need to be able to show what is their performance compared to their peers. And mm -hmm. it's only when you have that in black and white in front of them that you have something substantive to be able to support that. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been great. I so much appreciate your time. I, we were talking before we uh, turned the microphone on here that uh, we really probably need to do a full conference on something like this because I think peer review, you got a lot of great questions. I mean, I that got great itself, questions. Uh, should be an indicator that this is something the audience wants to hear. Oh, from. it's so important. I mean, yeah. it, if we haven't learned anything, even from like Dr. Death and stuff like that, I mean, cre yeah. credentialing um, and peer review is, it's, it's a lifeline. It's That's a lifeline right. to the safety and high quality care that we're providing our patients. And we can't take it lightly. Right. You know? Thank you so much, Carol Ann. You're I know welcome. you got to catch a plane flight. You're welcome, John. Thank you so much. Sure. I appreciate it. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. And our ASC Administrators Boot Camp for Administrators Ambulatory Surgery Centers and those looking to become CAS certified uh, will be January 24th through the 27th, 2023. For more information about that and all the benefits of uh, joining on our boot camp, uh, visit ASCpodcast.com. And ASCA's 2023 Winter Seminar is January 12th through the 14th at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'll be heading out there to do a whole morning on uh, finance and accounting. There's kind of like a mini boot camp, I would say, for uh, finance and accounting at that conference. So for more information on ASCA 2023's Winter Seminar, visit ASCAssociation.org. AORN's Global Surgical Conference and Expo 2023 is April 1st through the 4th at the Henry B. Gonzalez Convention Center in San Antonio, Texas. And ASCA 2023 Conference and Expo is May 17th through the 20th, 2023 at the Kentucky International Convention Center in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'll be doing, I think, three uh, speeches there, and, uh, and Lori will be down there also with us, as well as quite a number of staff from the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies Group. So definitely visit ASCAssociation.org to sign up for ASCA 2023. And also, don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have a credentialing conference that we recorded in 2020. It was a full-day conference talking about how to do credentialing, provider credentialing in an ambulatory surgery center. And then in uh, fall of 2022, we did a finance, accounting, and reimbursement conference, which is now available. 
We also did a uh, conditions for coverage conference. The recording's available uh, for, uh, we recorded that in 2021. It's a really good conference, Sue, right, for uh, explaining the all of the conditions for coverage. We're, we're going to uh, have to re-record that soon. And then also in 2021, we did a medical director conference, which talked uh, to medical directors about the responsibilities that they have, particularly uh, during a survey and, and what their responsibilities are as a medical director. And don't forget about our on-demand version of our Director of Nursing and Administrators Boot Camps. Those are uh, newly revised and they're available on our website at ASCPodcast.com. And again, let's remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. Patron members help support our efforts here in maintaining this free podcast. And for uh, $25 a month, you get a whole host of uh, benefits. The patron program is also known as ASC Central. As we indicated, there is a brand new website for it. Uh, And it's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. The uh, resources that are available include virtual conferences, links to various resources, policies and procedures, forms, drills, uh, and other information, as well as access to free AEU credits just for listening to the podcast. And probably the most important part and the the benefit that everybody seems to enjoy is those Saturday drop, drop-in sessions where you can uh, meet uh, via a private Zoom link uh, with other patron members and talk about things that are going on. We usually talk at least an hour, sometimes an hour and a half uh, every Saturday morning. It's not Every single Saturday, but uh, it certainly has been for at least the last couple months. And membership does help defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and the production costs. And for more information, of course, you can visit ASCPodcast.com. And that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Galey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.